location intelligence is where we start to derive the differences to change the dynamic of the fight. That draws out the patterns. It gets us to the conclusion that, say, social distancing does work. And these are the specific areas that need more stringent social distancing based on the characteristics that we know of the virus and the resources we have to bear. So we don't tax our systems and, and be stuck in a situation that's much longer than it should be. Welcome to the Esri in the Science of War podcast. You just heard Ryan Lanklos, Esri Director of Public Safety Solutions, allude to location technology's ability to help visualize where pandemic threats are concentrated and correlate with data for faster response. Across the globe, location intelligence is enabling public officials and emergency managers to prioritize the deployment of resources to change the dynamics of the fight against COVID-19 and support the efforts of frontline responders. Here, Esri CMO Mariana Cantor investigate how governments, agencies, and other organizations are using geospatial technology to respond to a global emergency. Hi, Ryan, and welcome to the Science of Wear podcast. As Missouri's first state geographic information officer and advisor to the governor's Homeland Security Council, you've had a lot of experience responding to natural and man-made disasters. Now you manage ESRI's Disaster Response Program, which is supporting organizations dealing with disasters and at this point, of course, the pandemic. Most of us really want to know what a frontline responder experiences during a crisis, and particularly with this pandemic, it is so unprecedented. Do you think that the frontline responders are reaching for new coping mechanisms? Yeah, thanks, Maria. I appreciate it for the chance to be here as well. You know, I think uh, a lot of us are wondering that question, that, and especially for those of us that have friends and family that are really first responders in this fight for the, the pandemic, really, it's the you know, hospital system that's stressed. It's our nurses and doctors that are, that are actually becoming the first responders here. And even myself kind of coming from a public safety background and as an emergency manager being trained to kind of handle stress in a fast-paced environment and how we manage the incoming issues and triage them as quick as we can to move forward. It certainly is a stressful environment for everyone. I think what's different about this and for non responders, what they're experiencing right now is that, you know, that process to go through response is not ending anytime soon. It's something that is long-term that we're looking months into the future. So I think what's different in these first responders that are out there experiencing is just how they continue to work at a high level of, of uncertainty, right? Also at a high level of, of operational cadence to keep moving us as a community forward as fast as we can. So I appreciate what they're going through as well as what uh, all of us are trying to adjust and adapt to. Overall, how strong have the level of coordination, collective action, and data sharing have been? And give us, again, some examples, if you will. Yeah, I think we're seeing a tremendous amount of information sharing and collaboration globally. Um, I think one one mantra to keep in mind in, in any incident is that they all start locally, right, in a community somewhere. Uh, and so the model for response really is that it's locally executed. They typically state mandated and federally supported here in the U.S. That means that information sharing and coordination across all levels of government and cross sector between private business and government is critical for that. And so one clear example that we see around information sharing that's uh, a good example of how this is working is where you see authorities uh, at a global scale, like the World Health Organization, who are collecting data around the cases daily, right, multiple times a day from countries around the world to provide a better level of situation awareness of how the event is unfolding, combined with groups locally, like Johns Hopkins University, for example, who's taking that data and aggregating with other geospatial data that's out there and adding value on top of that. So not just showing the 
where cases are, but actually starting to put analysis around it, data science around that in a geospatial context that shows trends and patterns and how the pandemic really is evolving at local level. I know that in the disaster response program, you're dealing with uh, global, national, local authorities and agencies. Is there different levels of preparedness across the various regions? So there are efforts to exercise or to expose deficiencies through standard exercises and look at uh, key components about how they organize or how they're going to address certain scenarios and cascading things that may occur. And traditionally, those are really focused on natural hazards. It's the things we experience most. They occur every year. There's hurricane season. There's wildfire season. But we don't really have a pandemic season. That's one way to look at it. And so I would say, yes, the easy answer is that you're going to find deficiencies uh, in these. I think certainly everybody would say in their their preparedness plans in the annex, they had a, a pandemic plan. But how how often are they exercised? Right? How often are they put into practice? And I would even say at the scale that we're experiencing now, how many of them actually plan for that level and that length of time for a pandemic to occur? Certainly, there are some really smart people out there that are doing amazing work to prepare and plan, and those plans can be pulled off the shelf and put into action rapidly. But if you think about small cities and counties where the infrastructure uh, needs support, we have aging infrastructure out there, hospitals, uh, resources in terms of nurses and staff to support this, there's certainly going to be deficiencies. And I think that's where in public safety, the traditional effort is to call mutual aid, right? It's to call your friend uh, who can provide you additional resources. And those resources are there to surge and help each other in time of need. That's just the way the system works. That's a natural function that, that comes in. But again, because we're on a national scale, and really global scale, as we're talking today, those resources are already assigned to other areas. And so it's putting a burden on people that didn't have good plans and certainly those that still had a good plan and needed resources. We're having to do everything we can to be more efficient, find new ways to do it, and call upon all of the friends we have available to that have a bit of capacity to share. You know, it strikes me that in natural disasters, the damage is typically visible, like hurricanes, tornadoes, and so on. But in this case, we're up against something completely invisible. What would you say are some of the ways that like mapping and location technology can help make invisible visible? You know, I think what, what the uncertainty that we all feel and the fear I think that we have is because it is an invisible threat. Right? You can't see the virus. And not like you can see a tornado or a fire front that's moving forward. You can just look at a community and understand where in and of itself the virus is moving, right? Where to anticipate its next move, if you will. But based on testing and the positive cases, and understanding the demographic characteristics of who the virus has the biggest impact on, right? Totally with underlying morbidity characteristics and the like. I mean, it's really no different in some ways than we plan and respond to a natural disaster. It's just we have to just anticipate that it's everywhere. And so we need tools that allow us to model at scale across the landscape based on the characteristics that we see and assess where those needs are greatest and how we apply that data to that situation. The other thing that's interesting about GIS or geographic information systems in this case, and not just applying resources, but how do we understand progression, right? I think anticipation is everything to win a fight. We need to know not just today what's happening, what happened yesterday, but certainly forward-looking, how can we get in front of that wave that's coming? And that's especially true in this pandemic. Right? We know that there's a two-week incubation, that incubation period that puts people in hospital that wave continues up. And we've all seen the models that show the curves of when to expect the peak and, and the valley, hopefully at the other end. But for us to understand that progression, we need tools like GIS. So we can't just rely on what we've seen it happen in South Korea or in China or in Germany or Italy. 
We need to understand geographically and think differently about how to apply tools to see where that can lead us. We've noticed from this data that this pandemic seems to strike different regions and different demographics with differing severity. So how does location intelligence help us understand the cause and source of these differences? Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. I think we all want to see like how others are dealing with the situation and that we have hope that that tells us kind of when we may see the other side of that, the curve, so to speak. Um, and I think that's dangerous in some ways because you know, just because we compare ourselves in numbers of cases in the U.S. to any other country or from country to country, that movement of the virus isn't the same within those countries necessarily. I did, there are so many underlying characteristics. Are there uh, shelter-in-place orders? Like when do they put in those orders to kind of keep people in, in homes and to, to do social distancing and how soon was that? And what geographic areas started that first? And if certainly if those areas had different underlying demographics and characteristics, that would change the outcome. Location intelligence is where we start to derive the differences to change the dynamic of the fight. Um, that draws out the patterns. It gets us to the conclusion that, say, social distancing does work. And these are the specific areas that need more stringent social distancing based on the characteristics that we know of the virus and the resources we have to bear so we don't tax our systems and, and be stuck in a situation that's much longer than it should be. Picking up the thread on prediction, clearly we're all trying to understand, and those who are actually responding when to anticipate the peak of that curve? Are we actually flattening the curve? Are we going to expect a second wave? When would that be? And all of that, I imagine, is very regional specific, right? So can you just talk about that and what are you seeing in the data? Certainly, we are at the front end of this fight. And I think that if you look at any of the models that are out there, you know, the one that I'm uh, kind of interested in right now that we're doing some work on is called the CHIME model. It's from the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, essentially, it's a model specific to COVID, right? It is designed to help model the progression of the coronavirus uh, over time. And it leverages a couple of common things called SEER. It's the susceptibility and infected recovered model. Uh, and it basically is designed to help hospitals and citizens and, and regions basically plan for what this might be in terms of capacity needed and so forth. And if you look at that model, right, so we're doing some work to take that model from the University of Pennsylvania to put it into a GIS that allows us to model at scale, right? So it's not just modeling my local hospital district. It is modeling the, the world, right, in many ways. So why that's so important and why that tells us where we are on the curve is that, you know, a hospital system certainly could run that model to anticipate the next 90 days. What does that mean in terms of bringing on staff or what the patient load might look like? It could be an aid agency wants to predict like where and when we're going to apply resources to different counties like we talked about earlier. And those models are so critical to understanding the way that we're in the middle of because the data is telling us what we've seen in projections that we are not at the peak yet. Social distancing is working in geographic regions where it's been applied early and often. So the more that we can social distance, the more that we can enforce those, we're all going to be uncomfortable in the middle of that. But I think that we do that, that bends or flattens the curve. And that, that data from the CHIME model and others tells us when to expect that peak and valley. And I think we're in for a long haul. It just means we all have to do our part, right? It's our, our duty is all of us, whether we're in the fight or we're at home working and trying to figure out how to get to a new normal, we all have a role to play in this fight to flatten that out. One of the first, or maybe the first dashboard depicting the movement of this pandemic from or visualizing uh, key metrics like confirmed cases, deaths, uh, various trends was done by the John Hopkins University. Another one was the World Health Organization. And 
they've appeared in the media time and time again. Everybody has seen these dashboards. What I'm curious about is, are you seeing consistent and accelerated adoption of these types of dashboards across governments in general and businesses in general? Yeah, I would say the dashboards, uh, especially in our terms, like our, our dashboards to visualize geographic information, it's not the number one trending thing that's in the market right now. I think everybody wants a dashboard. Everybody needs a dashboard if you want to think about it that way. And dashboards are, are brilliant because they actually take a lot of complex information, uh, some of that real-time, some of that pre-run through models like the CHIME model we described earlier, the base to overlay the real-time operational data on top of. And it puts an immediate context of a map, but also of key indicators that help you determine, are we on the progression that we need to be? Do we need to change something in our planning or operational cadence to address a, an emerging trend as soon as possible? Right? So I think dashboards are amazing in the fact they distill a lot of information into action and that's important, right, because time is everything in emergency management and public safety, especially in this fight. The sooner we can get in front of that and anticipate action, critical decisions that need to be made about more shelter and order, more strict orders, or different supply chain needs and logistics, that helps us. I think everybody's seen that dashboard for John Hopkins. It is on every website and on the news every night when I turn it on. So I think about why that is, and it, it is the fact that people need distillable information to understand this pandemic. And so they're clamoring for that, right? And that dashboard, I think, does a brilliant job of taking a lot of complex data and making it digestible against certain indicators. So we can all track the number of cases, the number of recovered, and so forth. You must be seeing that organizations in government or business who haven't really embraced, quote unquote, digital transformation are doing so now. Oh, absolutely. I think that if you've looked at organizations who quickly, like Johns Hopkins is a good example, one of the forefronts of putting information out there in dashboards and using interactive applications, maps, I think are, are just amazing, right? It's because being able to spawn quickly is key. And if they've embraced digital transformation, whether that's a city or county government or a business, they have the ability to go to scale when needed. And that's what this pandemic is about. It's about taking all the processes, all the information, all the resources that we have and doing it at a scale that we've never experienced before. That means we need speed and efficiency, right? And digital transformation is all about achieving speed and efficiencies around your business needs and objectives. And so if you're going from collecting data in paper form to eventually launching a digital application that can be crowdsourced like grocery store status or others, that's transformation that takes it to scale, right? And so if you look at organizations that are having a hard time where, you know, if you go to your local city or county and you don't see maps and data being shared, I mean, there could be a number of reasons for that, right? Political or otherwise, but if we're not scaling our processes up to demand, that immediately can start to erode trust with stakeholders, with citizens. And if there's a void, right, if people haven't adopted digital transformation or are not in the process of it for this event, something's going to fill that void, and it may not be what you want or what you need. Data is clearly paramount to fuel these dashboards. Would you explain to us how is this data layer, because there's so many different data sets, to provide this sort of human-level visualization and understanding and provide this action-oriented Kind of analysis. We have a colleague, uh, SD, who is on our team here, manages health, and I think you've heard her on previous podcasts. I think she has a really interesting mantra. It's like five steps to mapping a pandemic, right? It's understanding the cases and the spread and so forth and so on. If you take that down to its core, it's about giving people good guidance on data to provide human-level visualization, as you said, and analysis. It's that you know, we're certainly looking at case reporting from those authoritative sources and from uh, cities and counties are providing it's 
layering that with the demographics. So it's not just showing where cases are happening, but to who and why. So we can start to understand how the virus is attacking our communities. Uh, and then overlaying that on top, we're talking about resources. That's points of interest where people gather together. Uh, we can look at mobility data around that for social distancing and are people really following social distancing or not, all the way up into analyzing that collectively to start to get a, basically an understanding of the risk that we still face within our communities and understand what kind of the different decisions we might need to make to reduce that risk. So we can monitor this fight in near real time if you think about all of those coming together in a GIS, starting at the lowest level of where cases are actually happening, all the way through the other layers of information that allow us to distill something actionable to change the, the, the nature of the curve to change the pandemic. Could you describe for us your disaster response program, the one that you're running at ESRI? Yeah, certainly. So 25 years ago, when an earthquake struck in Southern California and several ESRI employees wanted to go help and pitch in at the request of the local community. And so they literally grabbed computers and what they had, they took off down the hall and into a car to go support uh, an incident locally for the friends and family that were impacted. And that really was the impetus for starting this program is that as a company, we feel like we can do more. We can help when people need us most, and we can be there as a partner to offer them assistance in a number of ways, whether that's just our software and access to the tools that can help them visualize and analyze and, and fight this fight in the new normal differently than they have before. In this case, for the pandemic, we have a team that's working 24-7 to make data available, to make applications available, to give tools that people can launch quickly and transform digitally organizations that, that need something new. So this program is there just to give back. It's part of who we are as a company and part of our corporate citizenship. I know that you've received close to 3,000 requests at this point to support this pandemic. Would you give us some examples of organizations that uh, we're supporting and the kinds of assistance that's required? Pretty much, if you imagine an organization in your mind, what you equate to when we say, what type of organization do you imagine asks for help? We probably help somebody similar to that profile. Uh, we've seen multinational global organizations that are working in the private sector. We've, we've seen multinational organizations that work in the nonprofit sector. Uh, we've supported local communities. Uh, we've supported nonprofits and food banks and, and, and the like. It's pretty amazing to me that, uh, you know, each day we get the chance to, to review kind of where the requests come in and out. You know, we've seen stuff in the global south. We've seen stuff in just the other day in Somalia, a hub site that was released to provide maps and data and information about the ongoing response that they're having there. And then I turn around and I look back to the U.S. and I see something as a small community in central Oklahoma that's doing the same thing, providing that information back out of the hub. And we'd certainly get a chance to, to see a lot of different types of organizations using the tools that, that are available to transform the way they're doing the fight against the pandemic. So everything from launching tools that allow them to collect and track capacity and workforce status uh, at local levels or for businesses with offices around the world. It's standing up dashboards to get real-time situational awareness of how the, the pandemic is changing, but also how it has a direct effect on their infrastructure, uh, whether that's stores or offices or the government. Uh, and then it's hub sites to allow people to, to communicate both with the public as well as their maybe constituents or stakeholders that say, this is the status of our supply chain, our logistics offices and the like. What surprised you about this pandemic from a public safety perspective? Number one is that the resources that we have available are actually fairly limited. And I think not being a healthcare professional and just working in emergency management, I think a lot about resource needs uh, and how to get resources for people who need them, right? Whether we're responding to a flood or a fire. What surprises me, I think, is that the shortage of resources that we have to this, at our disposal, PPE equipment and the like, 
you hear it in the news, right? And we certainly see it through modeling and data, the demand that's forthcoming. The second thing I think surprises me most is how quickly that people are able to virtualize. Emergency managers, I think, are good at bringing people together around the table. We've never really had to force ourselves to bring people together virtually around a virtual table. And as I've talked to a bunch of emergency management directors over the last few weeks in cities and counties and at the national level, but we're learning how to do this and, and adapt on the fly. And I think what surprises me is how quickly those individuals and those organizations have been able to move to this virtual operations center environment and continue to be effective. They're truly trying to still move forward. And I think that speaks to the evolution and the transformation in technology that allows us to do that. Um, it also speaks to the agility of the workforce that we're out there that we rely on to be safe. The first responders, the people making decisions are, are adapting, they're working fast. How would you characterize the mood of the emergency management profession right now? The mood of the emergency managers that I've talked to, I think, is tired but inspired. People get into this profession because they want to make a difference. They want to help bring resources to bear when it's needed most. And so I'm just inspired at how motivated they continue to be and how innovative they are to find new ways to address problems. They're not getting out of the fight anytime soon. Well, they are in it to win this thing long term. It's maybe tired, but they're going to continue the fight. And I, I appreciate that mentality. In your long career in public safety and disaster response, would you characterize for us how this is different for you personally, for your peers and colleagues? Sure, it touches home for me a bit. I've got a sister-in-law who's a police officer. I've got my best friend's a nurse, a school nurse that just got mobilized into a fight just this afternoon. What worries me and what I think is different and what I hear from both of them is that you know, they're being asked to do more with less from a police officer perspective. She doesn't have the option to to not engage individuals when it's needed. I think for the nurse, for, for my, my best friend, her, her job and what she's sworn to do is to, to help people in need and be in the fight. Well, this is different. And while it's more than we've ever anticipated, I don't see them running away from it. This is different and new. And we're all trying to figure out our way through. You know, in our case, we're talking about how data and information can drive decision making and get resources. And I'm invested in that conversation, right? Because I want my sister-in-law and I want my best friend to have the equipment that they need. And I want them to know how that's going to be there to protect them over the long term. Thank you so much for being here with us. I know you are incredibly busy in this stressful time, so we appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Morgan. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. And thanks to Ryan Langlos for explaining the role of technology and data in the fight against COVID-19. For information on COVID-19 resources, visit esri.com forward slash COVID-19. To learn more about location technology, download our free ebook, The Science of Wear. Discover the value of location intelligence technology at esri.com forward slash location intelligence.